finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I am Nate. And I am Andrea. And I can tell uh, by the wear on the pocket of your jeans that you're a regular podcast listener who has to often remove and store their headphones when random people on the street try to talk to you. And uh, also I can tell because you're listening to this podcast. Ooh, you have quite a knack for deduction. Yeah, I got a thing. I got a take about the deduction thing that we can talk about later. And I'm getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves because this episode of this podcast is about a study in Scarlet by Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Exactly. Most famous, obviously, for creating uh, Professor Challenger, but he also has a lesser known character named, let me check my notes here, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Oh, I'm interested to learn more about this character. <laughs> uh, so, oh, uh, so, should we introduce ourselves? We said our names. You're a librarian, and you're my mom. I write things, and I'm not my mom. <laughs> so you're all caught up. So this week, even though it's a little bit weird in the beginning, we are talking about A Study in Scarlet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So this is the first Sherlock Holmes and... Watson? Watson. John Watson story that was ever published. It was published in 1887 in Beaton's annual Christmas issue. And Beaton's is kind of like a lifestyle magazine. Okay. Where they have stories and poetry and essays and they have patterns for making clothes and knitting and home housekeeping tips and recipes that were sort of published geared towards women, but I guess the Christmas issue was sort of like a family-inspired issue. Yeah, I think like anytime you hear, you know, you go back and you look at older stories and stuff, or especially from around this time, and you see that it's like published in these weird magazines alongside like, you know, recipes for roasted pheasant or whatever, it seems like strange. But then I feel like it's less strange if you view it through the lens of like, TV didn't exist, right? And, like, this kind of stuff sort of occupied the space that TV would eventually occupy. And, like, any given TV channel, you know, outside of, like, premium shit like HBO or whatever, it's going to have, like, a detective show on, but also, like, a morning show where they're, like, making mimosas and, like, a sitcom about, like, a dad who's fat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's kind of like a general entertainment you know, that people, you know, that everyone would enjoy. And this annual would be something that would be a really thick edition and you would look through it through the year. Thick, thick with how many C's, though? Who knows? I mean, I've never actually, I've never actually seen the actual publication of the Sherlock Holmes. I've only seen the stories and reprints and reproduction volumes. But let's talk a little bit about the Sherlock Holmes. They call it the canon. It's very clear. If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan or a scholar, the body of work, that Doyle's body of work that deals with Sherlock Holmes is called the canon. So there are 56 short stories and four novels. And this one is considered one of the novels. But the novels are not really long. They're either really long short stories or novellas, but they're considered novels. 
so I think this, I'm looking at the cover now, not to pull us backwards in time, but I'm looking at the cover now, and I think this was all, this issue at least, is all fiction. All fiction. Like, a study in Scarlet is, like, big on the cover, like, it's the biggest text there, and there's two original drawing room plays, Food for Powder by R. Andre, and The Four... The Four-Leaved Shamrock, The Four-Leaved Shamrock by C.J. Hamilton, with engravings by D.H. Friston, Matt Stretch, and R. Andre, the writer of Food for Powder. So he does his own illustrations and writes his own stories. Maybe we should do an episode on him. Yeah, maybe. I would. It'd be interesting to look at and at least read those two plays to see like the context for this incredibly famous story. I mean, we talk about that when we do... Uh, you know, like when we did um, the Star Pit, we talked about like reading these things in the context in these magazines that they are in, and seeing like, what well, were you reading before you got to this story? That now most people appreciate these things isolated and just like a collection of Sherlock Holmes stories, or published on its own, or whatever. Well, I think you can tell that this is the first one because it's later on as Sherlock Holmes gets more popular and it gets serialized in a lot of different magazines, he gets. Doyle gets his own assigned illustrator, Simon Paget, who mm-hmm. makes this sort of iconic look of Sherlock Holmes. And I think, and then afterwards, he goes back and he illustrates the stories that he did not originally illustrate. So now, when you think about Doyle's Sherlock work, it's combined with the illustrations of Paget, who does this sort of iconic styling that people sort of expect from. Sherlock Holmes. He has the caped jacket, you know, the magnifying glass, all these sort of iconic symbols that deal with Sherlock Holmes. Simon Paget draws into the illustration. He wears the cloak in this. He doesn't wear the hat. He wears a different hat. He doesn't wear the hat, I don't think, in the stories. Oh, okay. And that sort of becomes like a symbol that is in the plays that are happening once he becomes very popular. When Doyle is still alive, and it gets incorporated into the look of Sherlock Holmes. But he does put on a. I know there. I noticed specifically because there's the part where he rushes out, and Watson describes him as like his outfit that he puts on. And I, oh, I should have wrote it down because I'm very concerned about hats and literary hats. He puts on a hat. It's not the de- famous Deerstalker. He puts on the. What do you call that? It's like an Ulster cloak or something yeah yeah that's like, the, a, like you know gk chesterton fucking cloak thing well i think the initial styling of sherlock holmes is that he's a gentleman and he has expensive tailored clothes but he's just very sloppily distractedly putting them together and i don't think that sort of sherlock holmes as like a fashion icon doesn't really happen until like i said the plays become popular and you get this people get to see what Sherlock Holmes looks like. Oh, okay. So it's a couple of, of uh, corrections here. It's Sidney Paget. Sidney Paget. Um, he is the first to give him this deerstalker cape and the inver- deerstalker hat and the Inverness cape, which is the one he's famous for wearing. So whatever his whole outer going out outfit that he puts on in this is completely different from his iconic. And I think outfit. you'll notice once you start, if you read the entire canon, that Doyle starts to incorporate. The way that Paget describes Sherlock Holmes in his own writing, so that they start to align a little bit better. But I guess what you see in the first 
story is Sherlock Holmes is sort of like a distracted intellectual who's very obsessed with his own research and less concerned with his appearance and with his housekeeping and things like that. Sure, yeah. So this story is kind of, it sets the premise for a lot of the iconic Sherlock Holmes things that we think about when we think about Sherlock Holmes and pop culture in general. And it starts out, it's a two-part story. Mm -hmm. The first part is um, Watson's reminiscence of how he met Sherlock Holmes and how he got involved in the first case. And then the second part, which often happens in Sherlock Holmes stories, is sort of a flashback where you learn a little bit of the backstory and then it ends with Sherlock Holmes telling you how he deducted all of the things that were in the flashback and solved the case. Yeah, the part's called The Country of Saints. And it's like, like, he catches... I don't know how... I haven't read, honestly, that much Sherlock Holmes. So I don't know how how typical this is of the structure. But the remembrance basically ends with Holmes catching the murderer. Right. And then A Country of Saints is almost entirely context for the murderer's motivation. Right. And then the very end, it cuts back. Sherlock Holmes explains his... Well, he actually doesn't even... It's very offhand how he explains his uh, methodology in this. Because it's basically like it cuts back and the guy's arrested. And then at the very end of the story, Holmes and Watson are looking at the newspaper. And Holmes is like, oh yeah, by the way, this is how I figured out who the murderer was. Yeah. Well, I think that... I, this is very important in the story is that Watson is always simultaneously in awe of Sherlock Holmes' skills and he's also astonished and kind of plays the like stand-in for the reader of the story. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's not like sometimes Watson is portrayed as being like a bumbling, you know... Yeah. Sometimes he's like a portly guy with a big handlebar mustache that falls down a lot right and sometimes he's like a competent doctor and soldier and i think that's what i think doyle sort of wants him to be almost like not only just a foil but also a compliment to sherlock holmes because watson has skills that sherlock holmes doesn't have and it's very clear especially in the first story it's pointed out the areas that sherlock holmes is lacking in Mm -hmm. so the story opens and we meet Watson, he's a military doctor and he's on leave in London. He was involved in what do they call it? The Second Anglo Afghan War. Yeah. Where he suffers from a shoulder injury. And then he gets a horrible, like, flu or something on the way back. Right. So he's, like, totally sickly at the start of the story. So he's on medical leave in London. Which I know you said was a weird choice to recuperate in, because that London at that time is very unhealthy. Yeah, I was confused. It's like, I, I, I don't know if it is a deliberate character choice or not, but it, you would imagine that a character, a guy like that would go to the countryside to recuperate. But he sticks around in grimy-ass London and gets involved in this murder case. Right, but some of the stuff we learn about Watson is, one, he's a highly skilled military doctor. So he's a doctor and he's a trained soldier and he's very skilled in um, like sharpshooting and hand-to-hand combat. He's very loyal. He was a hero in his, um, I don't know, I'm terrible. Unit, I don't know. Unit or, you know, his group. And he was not honorably discharged because he wasn't discharged, but he 
has a high reputation. He gets medals. He's very smart. He's very well educated. He's been to college. He's well read. He has a lot of friends and connections. So we learn like he's, I guess like he would be like a perfect companion. Sure. You know, he's intellectual. He's well read. He's amicable. He's very interested in what people are doing. And he likes people. He's social. I guess that's the counterpart to Sherlock Holmes, who tends to be sort of internal. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, because, like, honestly, the version of Sherlock Holmes that I have the most familiarity with is the BBC Sherlock show, which is heavily flawed. But one of the choices they make in that is that Watson's injury is a permanent debility. Like, he's, he's, he is discharged in that. And like he is, his leg is permanently damaged, or I think that's a it's a leg injury in the show, or whatever injury he has is like permanent. And in this, he's like recovering and he's not discharged. Is there a point at any point? I know you've read all of these, where that causes a conflict, where he gets like called back into service or something. I don't think so, and it's not implied that he ever actually gets better, because he always wears, he always uses a cane. Yeah. And then he also, there are times when he's unable to, like, fully fight to his full ability because of his shoulder pain. Mm -hmm. So I think he is disabled to a certain extent. But I guess one thing about Doyle is he never really pays attention to continuity. He doesn't really pay attention to, like... I have a take that maybe relates to that. And I think, like, anything that can kind of fit his story he changes to fit into the story yeah i think just from like there's like from a modern perspective and i i read this and i see like things that i'm not sure if they're seeds or not that because there's also a potentially interesting conflict that i'm fairly certain is never at all touched upon in the canon where holmes in this is very like if not ambivalent towards his personal reputation actively like dismissive of the idea of a personal reputation but the conceit of these stories is that watson's writing them down he's record the news doesn't record the exploits of sherlock holmes but watson does and so it's like you can imagine a story later on where sherlock finds out about this and is angry at watson for doing this well i think in the which first just never pays off but it's like one of those things where you see all these hooks that just like from the perspective of a writer working at that time, they're not hooks. They're just details. I think it's pretty clear that Sherlock knows the whole time that Watson is writing these stories. Because not in this, though. He sort of hints at the end. Oh, He's like, he? if I'm going to write this down. And because the thing with Sherlock is, and, he, and we'll get to it, he has a very complicated relationship with... The police. And this, I think, stems from Doyle's own personal interactions with Scotland Yard and the police. Because yeah, he, like, he, worked with them or something, Yeah, right? he makes a comment in the beginning where he doesn't want to solve the case because he doesn't want the police to get credit for it. So, yeah, But let's get back to Sherlock. I have a... I, not a take, but I, I think there's something interesting about that we can talk about. Sure. After Maybe after we go through the plot of the story. So... Sure. So Watson is in London and he's going through his money very quickly and he meets his friend Stamford from medical school and they start talking and he tells him that he wants to sort of find a, le- a less expensive place to live 
in Stanford who is studying chemistry says, I know this guy who is also looking for a roommate. He's very eccentric. He's very interested in chemistry. And, you know, if you're willing to meet him, I'll take you to the lab and you can meet this man. So the first thing is, that's Holmes he's talking about. Uh, He already has the place lined up. He just doesn't have enough money to rent it without a roommate. Right. And he, I think my favorite part of this story is the lead up to meeting Sherlock Holmes. Because, like, Stanford is, like, if you don't like him, you cannot blame me. Right. Like, you said you wanted to meet this guy. Because Stanford doesn't bring it up like, oh, hey, my, my this guy I know, he wants a roommate. Why don't you go room with him? He goes, oh, you know, a guy I knew was just talking about how hard it is to get rooms. Like, he doesn't, he does not volunteer Watson to room with Holmes. And when Watson agrees to, he's like, okay, but you have to accept full responsibility for this. I am not Sherlock Holmes's keeper. So Sherlock Holmes meets Watson, and they become roommates, and they rent the two two one B Baker Street, which is the iconic apartment where all of the stories are centered. Yeah, what's her the 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 landlady is missing entirely from this story? Right, she's kind. Of, she doesn't really become a story uh, character until later on. Yeah, okay. I, I just assumed that we would also get introduced to her, and she, the, the whoever is renting them the the, uh, the rooms doesn't ever come up. But when Watson meets Holmes, Holmes is studying some weird thing about hemoglobin. Oh, okay, he's not he's not beating up the corpses with a riding crop. That's just when Watson meets him. That's just a thing Stanford tells him that he did, right? Right, right. Yeah, he's like, and he's super excited about this this test he's developed that detects blood, essentially. Like, well after the fact that it should have. And he's specifically very amped up about the idea that there are people who should be in prison that aren't because this test didn't exist and they got off on technicalities. And I think this is also important because this is where you learn some things about Sherlock Holmes that sort of fit into the canon. You learn that Sherlock Holmes is not a medical student. He's not actually enrolled in the university. He's just there using the lab to do his own chemistry. And he doesn't have any degree or title. He's Mr. Sherlock Holmes specifically. Right, right. And I think that's sort of a hint too about later on when it comes out about his brother. That, you know, his brother is more well-educated. He's sort of like a dabbler. He, like, wants to learn a lot about something. And then mm. once he learns about it, then he moves on to something else. Well, so kind of hints that he has a really high curiosity and a really high intellectual threshold. Because he's studying really high-level chemistry, and he's doing this research in hemoglobin, but he's not a doctor and he's not a chemist. Yeah, so... I forget what I was going to say now. But yeah, so they then, meet and they agree to have the rooms. And Watson immediately becomes fixated on trying to figure out what Holmes's job is. Right, and I think this is also where it's hinted. And this is another sort of literary device slash crush, depends on who you talk to. But the, the precedent is set is that Holmes knows a little bit about everything. Except that's not really... That becomes the case, I think, later in culture. That's very much not the case in this. Holmes knows a lot about one thing, then it looks like he knows a lot about everything. And I think it's also interesting, and it's sort of played down in the stories, but played up in the pop culture, 
is that Holmes has an extensive knowledge of what he calls sensationalist literature. So yes. he knows like about all the crimes and he knows about, uh, you know, later on it becomes important that he knows about like, you know, the theater and about, you know, makeup and all these sort of cryptography and all these different things that like you would know about if you were interested in pop culture. Yeah. But so I brought up the thing about him getting excited specifically about the the uh, the people that got away, the te- people got off on technicalities. Because I think part of the reason that Sherlock Holmes exists, like you were hinting at with uh, when you brought up Conan's association with, or you brought up Doyle's association with Scotland Yard, is like, I think that, and it bears out by their portrayal in the stories, Doyle thinks cops are stupid. Well, I And think... Sherlock Holmes is this fantasy of like, what if I'm... If these cops, almost, it's the same, true as now, as it was back then, cops don't really solve crimes. And Sherlock Holmes is a fantasy of, like, what if a man existed that could solve a crime? Yeah, and I think, <laughs> I think that's exactly what it is. And then it, you can tell, as the stories move on, he becomes more and more antagonistic. Like, in the beginning of the stories, he puts up with Lestrade, who is the main recurring... There's two... There's two police officers in this story, but Lestrade is the one that keeps coming back in multiple stories. The other one, Goodwin or Goodman, he doesn't show up again. I could see why that character would be dropped. Not because he's, like, particularly bad or annoying, but I think the structure in this is that they're competing. And that would be so unwieldy to try and work into every story. Like, it, it works for this. I could see why he wouldn't want to keep doing that. But it sets up, now you have this sort of iconic pairing. You have Holmes, who reveals himself to be a consulting detective. And then you have Watson, who reveals himself to be the astonished and very excited and very supportive friend. And they come together, not to solve crimes together, because Sherlock Holmes is the one who solves the crime. Yeah. And Watson is the one who witnesses and records the crime. Yeah. um, But, so... I mean, my understanding is that Sherlock Holmes stories are the way they work is he finds out about a mystery and then he goes to it to solve it. But this sets off the idea that the majority of his work is that people come to his apartment and tell him the case they're working on and then he thinks about it and then tells them how to solve it. Right. Like, the consulting thing, I think, becomes less and less important. But this sets up that, like, that's mostly what he does. But I think it's important in the very beginning because it tells people that he will solve crimes, but he is not a police officer. Yeah. Because he obviously, he if he's so highly skilled, he could have just joined Scotland Yard, but he chooses not to. Well, because they're a bunch of idiots. Right. I mean, the police in this are portrayed as being stupid and rash and foolish and also glory hounds and glory hogs. Yes. So Holmes gets consulted on a case. And to show Watson what he does, he invites Watson to accompany him to this murder, which takes place in this abandoned house. But Watson has to talk him into doing it. Right. He doesn't, initially he doesn't want to. He thinks it's, it sounds too easy and, and he's bored. Right. And he doesn't want Lestrade to get any more attention. 
yeah. because he's using it to promote himself up higher in his career. And that's another thing that happens repeatedly in the stories is Lestrade comes to Holmes to ask for help. He doesn't want to help him because he doesn't want him to get higher in his career. But, you know, because his intellectual curiosity is his main factor, he always ends up helping him. Yeah, and then this is, we get another important insight on in his character, which I don't know how much this stays in the later stories, but in this one, it's very clear Holmes is not an altruist. No. Like, he's interested purely from an intellectual challenge perspective in mysteries. He doesn't... Like, he's excited by the idea that this... he will, Like, that's the thing with... This reveals that the hemoglobin thing where he's excited about uh, being able to catch these guys that got away his reaction to the the central mystery being presented reveals that he wasn't excited about catching those people because he wants justice to be done. He's excited because it's just another tool in his arsenal. Right. Yeah, and I think you, you kind of see this as the stories progress. There's the same trigger for every reason why he takes a case. So before we go move on to the actual mystery stuff, can we get rewind a little bit and talk about the beginning of the story again? Because I, I think it's so... The fact that the setup for this whole thing is that they are they decide to be roommates together is so weird and funny to me. Because, again, like, you think from a modern perspective, you, you were setting up... You had no... Like, Sherlock Holmes didn't exist. And you were creating this from scratch. You would have, like, some kind of circumstance for them to work together or something. But the idea that they just happen to live together and Watson's just like an overly nosy roommate, <laughs> and that's why he ends up working with them, is really funny. It seems very timely for some reason. I think kind it's of... also telling about Doyle, too, where he's like a weird persnickety nerd <laughs> who probably does, pokes his nose into his roommate's business <laughs> and is like very concerned about finding the right roommate or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the, yeah, the first instance we meet Sherlock Holmes he's pretty much just put in like a Craigslist ad to find a roommate like they agree to live together before they ever solve a mystery together which is an interesting thing but who would read that and be like yeah like Sherlock Holmes like this man is like the, he becomes an iconic character that lives outside of Doyle's I mean Doyle even gets to the point where he hates him okay I'm, I think I'm just gonna say my thing that I think now my my hot my steaming hot take on Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is a parody. Do you think? Yes. I think there's a two... I think this is supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be a joke. I think Doyle doesn't like mystery stories and is making fun of them. And I think that's part of why he ends up hating Sherlock Holmes so much. Because he has other characters that he created that aren't jokes. And Sherlock Holmes is a joke and he's super popular. I think the deduction thing is supposed to be absurd. Like, it, you're, we're supposed to think it's silly and ridiculous and impossible that he could come up with these things. And the explanations he gives for how he does the deductions are supposed to be inadequate and goofy. I, I think, like, the telling things are um, the when he explains to Watson why he learns the way he does. He, it's, like, this totally ridiculous explanation where he's like, your brain only has enough space to, and if you put too much stuff in your brain, you're going to forget important things. So I only learn things that are specifically about being a detective. But then he doesn't know, like, that the sun 
is the center of the solar system. But, like, knowing the position of the sun is also important to being a detective. <laughs> There's a part later on where a guy shows up in an old lady costume and fools him, even though he's supposed to be super detective Sherlock Holmes, the most observant man in the world. And then the most telling part, I think, is when Holmes and Watson have a conversation about other famous literary detectives and how much they suck. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I can't really argue with that. I think that that's true. I mean, I really do. I think you could be onto something there. But, I mean... So I think, like, the setup is deliberately kind of goofy with them becoming roommates and Watson just poking. Like, it's like a sitcom-y setup. Yeah, and I think, like, this story is the story of a man who was found murdered in an abandoned house. Mm -hmm. And there's only three clues, and they're very obscure. Yeah. And then this is another thing that you learn and becomes a recurring thing in Sherlock Holmes is that the most obscure clue is the easiest for him to figure out. Yeah. So, I mean, he doesn't really care about fingerprints or, you know, blood spatter or any of that stuff, but he cares about the cigar ash. Yeah. And that becomes like the... the And I think that's supposed to be funny. Yeah. But, I mean, also, I mean, that's the thing that happens in all the stories. There's this really weird clue that he figures out. And then there's also always this sort of hint either at like past cases or you know scientific monographs that he has penned in different names there's Mm -hmm. like that iconic like uh there's in pop culture there's always this talk about this supposed book that holmes wrote about cigarette and cigar ash and how to use it to solve a crime Mm -hmm. and then here he is in the first story using that information that he invented that like scientific study that he created studying ashes at crime scenes to solve a crime mm-hmm. only really works in the victorian era when you're guaranteed that every dude that does a murder is also going to be smoking a cigar or a pipe while he's doing it yes so he goes there and he sees this man who has no wound but there's mm-hmm. blood and then there's a word written on the wall raka 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 which the, this is a perfect example of how dumb he thinks the police are. The police are said, oh, obviously he was trying to write Rachel and he ran out of blood. And then Holmes is like, oh, it's the German word for revenge. Yeah, but he later figures out that it must not have been, again, I think this is so deliberately silly. He figures out that it must not have been written by a German because he writes the A in a way that a, that is not a German way of writing an A. But I think some of the stuff too, I mean, he's kind of, and this is another thing about Doyle is even with his other writing, when he starts writing sort of military fiction and stuff like that, he doesn't really care about the actual mechanics of how things work. Mm -hmm. So, but he spends an enormous amount of time talking about like the stride pattern of the killer and the length of his fingers. And then he talks about the footprints and the wheel marks and stuff like that. Like stuff that's the beginning of forensic science, Mm -hmm. but Doyle doesn't really care about that. He only really cares about that really rare cigar that this man was smoking while he committed a murder. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a rich foreign industrialist, right? Is that the guy who got murdered? Right. Yes. He was traveling is... with uh, something Drebber. Enoch Weber. I think it's Enoch Drebber. Enoch Drebber. That's right. He's an, a a, a well dressed American businessman who was found dead, and there's. He finds some clues. He finds some information about another man, Jonathan Strangerson, 
yeah, Strang, who's his, his secretary. And he finds a wedding ring. And this is another really common technique that Doyle uses is this red herring clues that he gives a lot of clues. I guess if you're supposed to be like trying to figure it out yourself, mm-hmm. you're never going to be able to figure it out yes. because only Sherlock Holmes sees the important clues. The clues that are mentioned are never important. Because I think Doyle's thesis is it's basically impossible to solve a crime. And that in order to actually solve a crime the way that people want crimes to be solved, there needs to exist an impossible and inherently ridiculous person like Sherlock Holmes. And then also, every single murder has to be unique and interesting and takes place in like this kind of heightened Well, I actually think that works crime better. Crime scene. Yes. I think that works better in the Holmes stories than it does in almost any other mystery series. Because Holmes self-selects for the most dramatic and interesting crimes. Yes. Like, there's probably a million crimes across his desk that are normal everyday crimes that he doesn't do anything for. The reason all the stories are about, in-universe, the reason all the stories are about the most interesting crimes is because Holmes is only interested in solving the most interesting crimes. So you avoid the problem of, like, Murder, She Wrote, where you're like... Why are all of these interesting murders all happening in this one town around this one lady? Right. Holmes is going out and finding the interesting murders, which, cool. Good good job, Doyle. So Holmes finds the ring, and he places an ad. This is another important <laughs> clue. This happens a lot in the Holmes stories. A lot of the deduction and the figuring out takes place either by sending vague, mysterious telegrams to his extremely elaborate crime network that he can connect to to find out information and then also placing ads using disguises in different newspapers because i guess in the victorian it's time the second plot relevant craigslist ad essentially <laughs> yes in this story so he places an ad to claim that he had found a wedding ring in the road across the street from where the house took place assuming that someone involved with the murder would show up because it turns out that the murderer murdered Drebber and then left. And then a police officer, a beat cop, saw that the light was on in the house, went in to investigate, found the body and came out and inter- uh, interacted with a drunken man who he had to send on his way before he could get the other police bobbies to come and look at the crime. And Holmes also that cop. For not putting together that that was the murderer in well, disguise. He, he pretty much just tells him that he, he, he might as well stop trying to be a police officer because you're never going to be good at it. And then he gives him like a gold coin and tells him to get a different career. Yeah. Because yeah. Doyle fucking hates cops. He does. He does. <laughs> but then another thing happens too, which is a very common plot point, is either the criminal dresses up in a disguise or... Holmes himself mm-hmm. later on starts to dress up in disguises to try to catch. I love disguises in fiction. I especially love disguises in like Victorian era fiction and stuff like that, where they're like almost impossibly good, even though you know that they probably looked terrible. So the woman, so this old woman shows up with this complicated story, and she tells Holmes and Watson, who are both in the little tiny sitting room, very close to this woman, hearing this story about her daughter. Who lost her wedding ring and her husband is a jerk. And if he doesn't find the wedding ring, she's going to get beat. Mm-hmm. And then 
Watson gives her the ring and then he leaves and then Sherlock Holmes tries to follow him, her, and she gets into a cab and he starts to follow. And then when he opens up the cab, there's no one there. Yes. And that's when he realized it was a man in disguise who jumped out of the moving... <laughs> and yes, and, and someone will dare to tell me that I'm wrong about my take that Sherlock Holmes is a comedy. Yeah, because it's not like she shows up and, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. This is the case. But my remembrance is, uh, my reminiscence is that it's not like she shows up and Holmes is like, sees through the disguise immediately and observes her, like, is like, oh, it's a dude in a old, weird old lady disguise. Like, he he doesn't seem to realize it until after the old lady manages to get out of a moving cab without him noticing. Well, this becomes an important plot point in a lot of the other stories, is that Holmes himself is highly skilled, and he... He wears these disguises as women and men and, you know, workmen and all these different kinds of jobs that he can sort of infiltrate in using these disguises. Mm -hmm. And there's discussion of, like, putting cotton in your face. And it's like, how are you, like, how could people not see this? He's so highly skilled. Here's the thing, though. Our eyes have been trained by years of SNL and Mad TV to spot someone in prosthesis. Spot someone who's made up to look like another person. They didn't have SNL back then. They okay. didn't know. They don't know what, what somebody with spirit gum on their face looks like. They never saw somebody put cotton balls in their mouth to do a Brando impression. They think that's real. I think that it's been proving out later on in the stories that Holmes doesn't actually know what a woman is. Yeah. So other than Mrs. Hudson, his old housekeeper... He's oftentimes fooled or befuddled by the actions of women. Sure. So I think that's what happens here. So then... But then Watson also has a whole conversation with this guy who's like a 25-year-old man dressed as an old lady. Well, Watson, he is so nice that he's often tricked. He's, also... He, he's like the Fox Mulder of the group. He's the one who gets hit on the head with the gun. Yeah. He's the one who gets thrown out of the boat. I mean, terrible things always happen to him because he trusts people so much. I mean, spoiler alert. It's not just like a young man in an old lady costume. He's like a fur trapper. <laughs> he's like a mountain man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that. Because also, uh, Doyle doesn't know anything about people who come from America. I'm interested to get into the America stuff. So, so anyway, the cops in their true bumbling um, style, they arrest a man that they think is responsible for the murder, and they go to Holmes and they start bragging. And this is really when Holmes starts to act oh, like he a gets dick. so mad. Yeah, and then he kind of was like, "Good job, to you. Like, like he's very kind of upset with them, and they think that they've done the right thing. It's very funny because he's super sarcastic in this whole part. Because every time the guy is the police officer is bragging and Holmes is saying stuff like, mm -mm, "Yes, great job, wonderful, splendid work." <laughs> yes. And <laughs> elementary, my dear. Which he never actually says. That's another thing. Does he never say that? He never says that. that That's from the movies, I think. The right? play. Oh, it's from the play. Started in the play and continued in the movies. Yeah, it's a real beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. So Holmes knows that they have arrested the wrong man. And then it turns out that there's a stabbing that happens in a rooming house. 
and they go there and they realize that it's the secretary Strangerson who got stabbed in the heart. So the guy they initially arrest is a Navy officer? Right. Whose mother was uh, renting a room to Drebber and Stangerson. And he got in a fight with Drebber. Who was trying to hit on his sister. Like the, the, the night of the murder. So he looks very suspicious. But then they arrest Stang... The other cop, Lestrade, I believe, is the one who arrests Stangerson. And then Stangerson gets... Or goes to arrest Stangerson and finds that Stangerson's been murdered. Yes. So then he finds these pills in the box and he takes them home. And then in the most disturbing, I think, part of this... This is weird. <laughs> he tells Mrs. Hudson, who is unnamed at this time, to go downstairs and get the he doll. He just tells Watson to do it, I think. To go get this dog that's not doing well. And specifically a Jack Russell, he makes that thing. He says that dog's been bad, which I realize... You realize later he means, like, sick. But for a second, it kind of seems like Holmes is about to murder a naughty dog <laughs> to prove a point in this murder mystery. But the best part is there's two pills. And he cuts one in half and he gives it to the dog and the dog's still alive. And he goes, okay, now I understand. He cuts the second pill in half and he gives it to the dog and the dog dies. Yeah, so and they then kill he's kind of like, get this dog out of here because I just solved the case. <laughs> they, they kill a dog to prove that the pills are poison. Which means that the first guy was poisoned, but the second guy was or stabbed, right? Yes. And so that's like a big question mark. So, the, yeah, the police don't want to put the two together, but Holmes does. And then also this is a point where the street urchin shows up, and then they're called something else. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're called... Do you, want, do you want me to say it? Well, you people can read it themselves. They're called a very... Uh... It's not that, but they're called street Arabs, which doesn't seem great. But they're the sort of street urchins that eventually become the Baker Street Irregulars. But they're not called that in this. They're just some street children that work for Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and he pays them. (laughs) The best is like, he's like, you don't all have to come up here because you're all dirty. So just one of you come. really mean them (laughs) up. And they're like, yes, governor. And they just take the coin and they get back on the street. And he tells Watson that these child laborers that he hires are really good workers for a little bit of money. <laughs> I want to see the origin story for this because I'm imagining the scenario where like Holmes is trying to solve a mystery and he needs something done and he sees like a kid on the street and he's like, you child, I'll give you a penny for if you do this thing for me. And then the kid just keeps bringing around more and more kids <laughs> exactly to get money from Sherlock Holmes. And he's just like, hmm, yes. So he tells the street urchin to run outside and fetch a... Um, at one point, I guess the police show back up, and this is when he shows them the results of his experiment with the dog. The, I think the, the two, the Strahd and the other guy are there through that whole part, I think. So then he says, go outside and get a... It's a Scottish Terrier. Sorry, it's not a Jack Russell. Oh, a Scottish Terrier. So he says, go outside and get us a cabbie, because I need some help. And then he gets the cabbie, and I guess Holmes knows, later on you find out, Holmes knows that the person who committed the crimes, is working as a cabbie and is waiting outside for a chance to get in there and deal with Holmes. And Holmes invents, of course, this is another thing Holmes does. He invents things that are highly practical that he alone could probably just retire and be rich off. He invents a kind of handcuff that can be put on with just one hand and he captures the caddy, the cabbie, who ends up being the 
murderer whose name is Jefferson Hope, which is the a part- most American yes. name that he could think of. See our episode about the president is missing. Mm-hmm. His name is Jefferson Hope. And that's when you realize that Holmes had cracked the entire case wide open. Also, um, he sends a child to collect a known murderer for him. Yes. <laughs> Who, like, he did pay him a penny, so... Yeah. Also, the kid's name is Wiggins, and I don't know if that specific character ever comes back, but I did know his name. It's interesting when we start to talk about um, spinoffs and pastiches of Sherlock Holmes... Laurie R. King, who writes a lot of Sherlock Holmes-inspired work, has a character who ends up being a barkeep and a thief who is the adult version of the child from this story. Oh, okay. So. Is, uh... No, that's probably not the case. What I was gonna say is, uh... Chief Wiggum named after this kid, but that doesn't... It's not the same name and it doesn't make any sense. No. Um... So then that's... And then kind of it ends with, like, Holmes, like, told you, Watson. I told you I could solve this. And then it cuts to part two, which is called... The Country of Saints. Oh, the Country of the Saints. Right. Because and at first, the Mormons are apparently very important to this story. At first you start reading and you think, like, is this right? Is this the right story? Yeah, because it becomes like a frontier adventure. Yes. So it opens with this man, John Ferrier... Who has a young child and they're about to starve to death and die of thirst in the but, deserts yeah. of Utah. They're and, like the last of, they're like a pioneer party and everyone's died except for this one dude and this one girl. So they're about to die and they see a shining light and they are rescued by an enormous uh, train of pioneers who are moving to Utah and turns out that they are one of the factions of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, but it's not just that they're saved by one of the factions of the Latter-day Saints. They're, they're saved by the Lion of the Lord, Brigham Young. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. And he says to him, you know, we'll take you this is in. some Forrest Gump shit. Yeah, we'll take you in, you and your daughter in, but you have to... Um, join our church. And then Ferrier, who is this sort of grizzled old man and it's not actually his daughter he just saves her when her mother dies he agrees to join the church and he renames the girl lucy ferrier and then he goes to the town and years pass and he builds up wealth and he builds up respectability and his daughter becomes this beautiful woman that you know a lot of people are interested in and but he never really joins the church in the religious fervor of the rest of the members. Well, specifically, he never takes any wives, let alone multiple wives, as was a common practice among the Mormons at the time. Um, I just think it's so weird, and no one talks about it, that real-ass person and, you know, historical monster Brigham Young is like a, has a speaking role in the first Sherlock Holmes story. Like, he shows up twice and like says stuff and drives the plot forward i think what's also interesting is that there's many um adaptations of this story and there's movies and tv shows and plays and things like that none of them ever have this mormon component and i think like if you are a fan of sherlock holmes and you don't read the stories you don't know this part you may know the part about the man dying in the house and the Mm -hmm. pills and and the word written in blood. 
but you don't know this whole story about this Mormon component. It's oftentimes just removed from the story. Yeah, like, it turns out that what's been happening in the background of this story is like a, like a Mormon revenge tragedy. Right. So it turns out that Ferrier, when his daughter comes of age, some of the other elders in the church want to marry his daughter in their multiple marriages. Yeah. And he does not want that. And then his daughter meets Jefferson Hope and they fall in love. And he's, this is the best part, he's the mountain man who kind of lives in the mountains near Ferrier's Yeah, farm. he's not a Mormon. He is a Gentile, as it were. Which does not, they are not, the Mormon Council of Elders or whatever they're called are not happy about that. No. And they specifically wanted to marry either Drebber or Stangerson. Right. Because they're high up in the church. Yeah. But it turns out there's a weird plot point where Jefferson has to go to the mine for like months. Yeah. And then when all this happens, Ferrier tries to get a message to Hope Mm. to rescue his daughter and he doesn't come until the last day. And then there's this sort of like really creepy kind of like dog day afternoon thing going on where every day they give him a month. Yeah, it's really unsettling. And every day they break into his house and somehow write a number on his farm, counting down the days to kind of sort of terrorize them until they decide who is going to marry the daughter. But the daughter is in love with Jefferson Hope, and he shows up on the very last day, He and they escape to the mountains. Well, so they decide to escape together. Ferrier... Hope and Lucy, and then Ferrier has to go hunting. When he comes back, they're they're yeah. He, they've been recaptured, and Ferrier is dead. Yeah, and then Lucy dies of a. She's married to Drebber, right? And then she dies of a like a broken heart or some shit. Mm-hmm. Like a month later, while they, this happens, while Ferrier is trekking back through the wilderness to get back to. Her. I think this is too. This is kind of hints back to Doyle's love of writing, like action stories because th- mm-hmm. this part is very actiony there's a shootout there's a horse chase you know they're in the wilderness and then jefferson shows up and lucy is dead and he rips the wedding ring off of her finger and says she will not be buried with this and that's when he takes him 15 years but that's when he decides he's going to get revenge on drever and strangle well so what happens is he all of a sudden now he has a heart condition Mm-hmm. He has an aortic aneurysm. So he has to go away to rest and recuperate. And while that happens, there's like a schism in the church. And Drebber and Sangerson leave to go become businessmen. Of course. That that happens quite often. And then he has to spend a bunch of time hunting them down. And then he hunts, eventually hunts them to Europe where he does the, his murders. Well, I think it's supposed to be hinted that his heart problem stems from his like broken heart oh i'm sure yeah yes and at one point he doesn't have enough money to go to england so he has to work as a cook Mm. and so he saves up money and finally goes to england and that's when he finds he can't find them and takes a job as a cabbie yeah and then he comes across one of them realizes they're still both shits Drebber is like an alcoholic and he keeps picking on young women and mm. Strangerson is like a creepy bully. So 
he lures him in the cab and ends up killing him. He gives him the choice to take the poison. You take one pill and I'll take the other pill. There's allegedly four pills in the pack. Yeah. That he makes some kind of poison up from. So the first time he does it, it works and Drever takes the poison pill and ends up dying. And he pushes him into this abandoned house, which I think this is a really weird detail of why the house is abandoned. Because a guy who lived there died of like a communicable disease and no one else wants to rent this house? If you want to talk about weird um, details, do you remember where the blood that he writes the message in comes from? Because... Trevor doesn't bleed when he poisons him. He gets a nosebleed, right? He gets a nosebleed and then writes it in his own noseblood right. to confuse whoever's going to investigate the scene. Right. Because unbeknownst to him, as just a lowly mountaineer American, you know, the world's greatest consultant detective is on the case. Mm-hmm. So Trevor dies, he stages the murder scene and then he leaves and that's when he realizes he doesn't have the wedding ring yeah and that's when he goes back and he's disguised as a drunk and then the bumbling bobby lets him go yeah but holmes who was looking because it was this is another thing a lot of the cases hinge on when it rained and when it didn't rain Mm -hmm, the the, the weather is the equivalent in sherlock holmes as the train schedule is in the agatha christie novel everything hinges on the train schedules in the christie novels Everything hinges on when it rains in the Sherlock Holmes stories. So he realizes that... Oh, and then this is another point which kind of feed what you were saying. He says, oh, this cab, he had a horse that had three old horseshoes and one new horseshoe. Yeah, I forgot about the horseshoe thing, yeah. (laughs) And then how, like, he knew it was a, a... commercial cabbie by the way that the, you know, how how low it sunk into the, like, soft soil. So he was able to solve that. That's how he knew. And then, of course, when he sent the telegram, he sent the telegram to America to one of his contacts who told him this sad story about Jefferson Hope and his uh, long-lost love. And that's when he was able to put this together and solve the mystery. So. So then it goes back and... Jefferson is arrested, and then we learn about his heart problem, and Holmes says, well, too bad the police aren't going to get credit for solving this one because Jefferson Hope's going to die before he goes to trial, and he does. He has an aneurysm, and he dies. Yeah, and then that part that I talked about earlier happens where Holmes and Watson read the newspaper, and Holmes explains all the stuff, like with the horse and whatnot, I think. Yeah, and then this is like another thing that happens is that Watson starts to write these stories down, as a way to placate Holmes, who feels he's not getting credit. Well, it seems like Holmes doesn't really care that he's not getting credit. It's more like Watson's upset about it than anything. Well, I think later on, as the stories go on, there is like a part in one of the stories where Holmes, you, you realize that Holmes has been reading Watson's case books mm-hmm. and points out some errors or some kind of creative changes that Watson makes to make the story better. Hmm, interesting. So Watson's an unreliable narrator. I would think so. Hmm, I don't know how to feel about that. But I think, like, this sort of sets some of the, like, iconic parts of what becomes the Sherlock Holmes sort of uh, culture. You know, the 221B Baker Street. You know, Mrs. Watson is not as, like, nosy, but she gets more nosy as the stories go on. Mrs. Hudson. Yeah, Mrs. Hudson. And you learn about Watson and his story and how he 
help Sherlock Holmes never to solve the story because Watson can't solve a mystery. He's, yeah. But Watson becomes a style of, like, companion that you... Like, I talked about Agatha Christie. Yeah. Like, in the Perot novels, he has his military companion who was also sort of like even more incompetent right yeah and then you kind of get this sort of his like this sort of tradition of this bumbling assistant that's a lot of times in british detective stories yeah well i think for a lot of things if you want to make your character like this super brain you do kind of need some sort of humanizing figure there and like that's the role that these characters kind of fulfill and of course, this is taken to its ultimate art form when the two are fused into one in the figure of the great Columbo, right. who is both Holmes and Watson as the same guy. Leave it to the Americans to sort of perfect it. Yes, <laughs> economize the. But I think like a lot of the stuff that you see and what you associate with Sherlock Holmes is found in this first one. There's the magnifying the glass. Violin. The violin. We didn't talk about that. His love of playing the violin. Mm-hmm. His sort of eccentric, like, lifestyle where he has, you know, he lives in a house filled with books and papers and clues everywhere. And, you know, his obs- it's like single-minded obsession with solving a mystery, which becomes important then later on. Sure. But I think, like, it, I, one of the reasons why I don't think the Mormonism thing is put in any kind of re, reenactments or any kind of new productions of this is because it's a really sort of unflattering, like, depiction yeah. of Mormonism. And I can't imagine that when it was published, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints was not upset about this. Yeah, I, and there's like a thing, I remember reading somewhere like one of Brigham Young's descendants said that Holmes apologized or something. I don't know. The, <laughs> you can read about the Mormons. I, uh, that... I recommend there's a really good book called uh, No Man Knows My History that was written by someone who left the church about, um, what's his face? Not Brigham Young, the main dude. Joseph Smith. Right. Um, but it, they, have a, they have a spotty history. I, when I'm interested in... I don't think there's anything about this, but something that piqued my interest about the Mormon thing is, like, at first I thought it was really weird. I was like, what? Did he read, like, an article about the Mormons? Why is this in here? And then I was like, I remembered that the Mormons actually had a not insignificant presence in England. A lot of earlier Mormons were recruited from, like, the slums in London, basically, with the promise that the Mormons would help them find prosperity in the the American frontier and then escape from the squalor of urban England. And then the other thing I was thinking about is Doyle is famously a spiritualist and it has like an interest in mysticism and stuff. And there's a lot of overlap between the stuff that Joseph Smith was doing, especially early on in his career, and the stuff that the spiritualists that Holmes would have been following and talking to and reading about were were doing. And I, I can't help but wonder if there's some sort of like like rivalry there or something like i know holmes was not holmes doyle was a a big proponent of like christian spiritualism and i wonder if there was some sort of conflict between them and someone like smith who used a lot of their techniques and imagery to further his own cause that was separate from theirs could be 
Not that the time, like, I don't know how the timeline lines up or whatever, but... But let me ask you a question. Why is Sherlock Holmes such a beloved character? Why is he so popular, even outside of Victorian England? Well, I think, like... Well, I think there's something to that fantasy of, like, this is the guy that can solve the crime. Like, that's the same reason that superheroes are compelling, because it's, like, the world is scary, and the idea that there's, like, someone who can actually do stuff about it is powerful. I mean, I think he's really compelling. Like, he does a... Doyle does a really good job of making Holmes, like, weird and compelling and interesting. The idea that he, like, knows so much is neat. And, like, all of the deduction stuff is, like, really fun. Like, as much as I think it's a joke, it's still really fun when he makes, like, a wild observation and then walks you backwards through the, like, esoteric observations he made to get there. And... Like, this story is exciting. The mystery is really intriguing. And then it dips into this wild frontier adventure story. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's my take on yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think... And I... he's super versatile. In the same way that a character like Batman or whatever, you can kind of, like, do anything. You can sort of slot Sherlock Holmes into any sort of mystery that you want to. And you can ratchet up the absurdity or the violence or whatever... You could throw him up against villains like Moriarty, where he's, like, matching his wits, or you can have him try to untangle, like, a puzzle or whatever. Yeah, I think that's one of... I mean, I I think what makes Sherlock Holmes great is also one of Doyle's, like, writing flaws. And I think, like, Holmes combines, like, science and logic and popular culture and sensational literature and action into one story. But I think the part that Doyle falls down on a lot is that Holmes like high in intellect is the crutch that he uses for anything so like if he has a plot point that can't like legitimately be described by any kind of known thing mm-hmm. it just so happens that Sherlock Holmes is an expert in it and I yeah. think that kind of I guess it's the formula that he uses to keep cranking out these stories. Mm. But like I said about like the Agatha Christie novels, if you read them constantly, you read them continuously in order, you see her formula and how it evolves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with this. Any kind of implausible plot point that some other writer would say, like, I can't, how do I justify doing this? Doyle always just justifies it by saying, like, oh, you did not know this about Sherlock Holmes, but he is an expert in beekeeping. He is an expert in, you know, industrial ores used during the Industrial Revolution. Like, whatever problem, you don't know it because you don't know everything about Holmes because his depth is so deep that you can never know anything about him. That becomes an easy way for Doyle to write the story to the conclusion where... You, even if you're trying your hardest to solve the mystery along with Holmes, you'll never be able to solve it because you don't have this sort of basic hidden information that Sherlock Holmes always has. But I think that challenge, that even though it is impossible, I think that challenge aspect is is compelling to some people and does keep people coming back. Where it's like Sherlock Holmes is set up to be the, the smartest guy in the world and the best detective, and you do there is something to. There's something, like, um, enticing about the idea that, like, maybe I can solve it before him. Maybe I can be smarter than this character that's supposed to be the smartest guy in the world. And you never do it. But, like, I could see that bringing people back over and over again to be like, this time I'm going to figure it out before him. Yeah, and I think, like, Holmes is, like, a lovable weirdo. Sure. 
and people can relate to him because he, despite being this highly like stylized um, character, that his like in, everything about him is, you know, amplified. Mm-hmm. People can relate to him. They can relate to him not being able to interact with people or his obsession with these obscure hobbies and. And, like, even Watson, who, like, supports him and is a very loyal and caring friend throughout the entire canon, mm-hmm. people can relate to him because they always have that, like, weird friend or that friend that has this sort of weird habits and kind of... They can relate to his sort of differentness, I think. Yeah. And I think, like, even if you don't agree with my assessment that this is a comedy and Holmes is a parody, like, their stories are still funny and they don't take themselves too seriously and like there there's almost something similar to that sort of tone that people like so much about like marvel movies now where it's like the characters are kind of funny and the situations are a little bit ridiculous but also like people are getting murdered like we do need to catch a murderer but i think like home it's true because Holmes will put the same amount of effort into solving like a crime for like stolen royal jewels as he does for like you know a lady whose husband hasn't shown up in three days so i mean he like if you're like working class or you're royalty or you're a rich admiral he gives you the same amount of attention to your crime i think also from outside of like a purely literary perspective like holmes is a character is such like a specific collection of quirks and mannerisms and iconic imagery and whatnot that it's always exciting to see like how is this director and how's this actor going to interpret Sherlock Holmes and like you know like there you it's it's sort of because it's so well known and the formula is so established it like challenges you to put a twist on it and it's always exciting to see what twists people come up with for it I like I mean, I think what you said, the more I think about it, the more I think you might be onto something. Because I'm thinking about some of the weirder cases that they solve. And, you know, there's the one where um, the, the speckled band. That's my one, favorite one. Yeah, where the, the murderer is a snake. And then there's Silver Blaze, which is this, you know, the, the horse. The, the horse. And then there's sort of one that's like a vampire and then there's another one where a hobo writes symbols on a wall and they're interpreted in different ways and so i think there's kind of a lot of wackiness that goes on in mm-hmm. these crimes i mean they're not all like some of them are like the admiral has you know the plans for the secret war submarine has that's a sign of four right yeah like uh, that kind of i mean there are serious crimes that are happening but then there's weird things like you know there's one complicated story where a nanny is hired because she has the same color hair as their daughter who is missing and they put her in the window so that the beloved can, you know, so he has to stop the crime of what actually happened to the missing fiance. And there's, there's kinds of weird like country manner crimes that are happening. There's one that involves a bicycle at one point. Yeah. So I think he does have these sort of weird, I mean, the cases have to be really weird for Sherlock Holmes to be interested in them. And I think that's, yeah, that's his hook. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to talk a little bit about all of these different modern interpretations of Sherlock Holmes and these different pastiches that there's a lot of famous writers that write Sherlock Holmes stories. Sure. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a ton of later day stories. I mean, there's even, you know, Michael Shabon has a Sherlock Holmes thing. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has a Mycroft. Yeah, and then there's even, like, characters that are essentially Sherlock Holmes, but aren't officially Sherlock Holmes, like, uh... Solar Pond, who is the character created by August Derleth, who's maybe most famous for uh, working with Lovecraft and collecting a lot of, like, leading the charge for collecting and preserving a lot of Lovecraft stories. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. But there's, like, you know, like you said, there's pastiches, there's a... a like, one tr- now that the character's, like, is Sherlock Holmes in the public domain? He is, right? He is now. Yeah. yeah, like, so now it's just, like, free game for anybody to do whatever they want. Yeah, I was thinking about my, like... If- if you would ask me what my favorite Sherlock Holmes inspired series was, and I was thinking about this. I know I talked about it before. It's the Mary Russell mm-hmm. series by Laurie R. King. And she is really, she's a crime writer and she writes this series. And this, the premise of the series is, is that Sherlock Holmes was a real detective and Watson wrote his stories, but he aged him up. So he was a young man when he wrote these stories the case books and Mary Russell, who is a young woman meets an older Sherlock Holmes and they become involved and they solve crimes in the 1920s and the thirties. So I like that sort of idea that Sherlock Holmes is reimagined in a modern context. I think that's really good. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about Anthony Horowitz, who is a famous writer he is the writer who writes the scripts for the Midsummer Murder series, the BBC series. Mm-hmm. He wrote, which is considered the only official Sherlock Holmes sequel. Oh, he was commissioned by the estate in 2011 to write a Sherlock Holmes, a new Sherlock Holmes story, which is called The House of Silk. How did you read it? How is it? I read it. It has to do with like um, human trafficking. Interesting. But it's it's interesting. It's almost like, it's kind of like when the man who wrote the... Oh, and what is his name? Ian Colfer? Yes. He wrote, wrote the, the the next, or he wrote that that uh, Jedrick's Guide yeah. book. Yeah, or, you know, Brandon Sanderson finished uh, Wheel of Time. Uh, my favorite Sherlock Holmes pastiche is, it's a play and a movie and a band called They Might Be Giants. Oh, okay. Uh, and so the, the, the band takes their name from, I think, from the movie specifically. Uh, but it's about a guy who, he's a judge, I think. But his wife dies, and he retreats into this fantasy of being Sherlock Holmes. And it gets at that thing that I was talking about, where Sherlock Holmes is this character that sort of exists to play into this like desire we have for... A world with a kind of absolute and unerring justice that can't exist in reality, and it plays on that. And it's like it's also like a, it's like a comedy. Like he's like thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, and everybody's like, uh, I guess just let him be Sherlock Holmes. It's like I believe his uh, therapist. She gets like looped into it, and he he's like, oh, you're Watson, mm-hmm. and. I like that a lot of times, too. That's an, another thing that happens, especially in, like, the TV shows. Like, Elementary is a perfect example. Watson is reimagined as a female. Mm-hmm. And there's even a series, which is kind of ridiculous, called the Lady Sherlock series. Of course, I read it. Sure. Because it's ridiculous, and it's about Sherlock Holmes, so I read it. Um, this woman 
makes a fake Sherlock Holmes that's always sick. And she, her name is Charlotte Holmes, actually solves the cases. Mm-hmm. And so that's a series that's sort of, it's written by a woman who is most known for being a romance writer. And now oh. she writes these Sherlock Holmes. It does, they don't ever do, do they, there's no, uh, they don't do like a Remington Steel at any point, do they, where the real Sherlock Holmes shows up? I, I, at and this, he's Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> I hope that's happened. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll ask her that on Goodreads. She's always letting people give her suggestions on Goodreads. She's really nice about it, I guess. And I think... I'd also be remiss if I didn't talk about the other great uh, Sherlock Holmes tribute slash pastiche, which are the Star Trek and the Next Generation episodes. Of course. Where Sherlock Holmes on the holodeck and Moriarty get, becomes self-aware and escapes from the holodeck. That shit rules. Love that. Well, Anthony Horowitz goes on later on to write a whole book about Moriarty, which is called Moriarty. I mean, that's what, he's another, like, in the same, almost as equally as iconic... And, um, you know, prone to remix and pastiche and tribute, Sherlock Holmes is the character of Moriarty. Like, I think that, uh, you know, Doyle within the Sherlock Holmes stories creates three, arguably four, like, iconic archetypal character models. Not that they, I mean, they all have antecedents. I mean, they literally talk about, like, um, Puzz detectives and stuff in Sherlock Holmes. And obviously there's some of, like... Does uh, like Phantomas and shit like that in Moriarty, unless I'm getting the timelines mixed up. But you know, there are master criminal characters that predate Moriarty. Yeah. Also, I think I don't know if I mentioned this, but his Doyle's own son, Adrian, pulls a Tolkien family mm-hmm. tradition, and he starts to write his own Sherlock Holmes. Well, also, his like brother-in-law or something. Has there's a character called like AJ Raffles, who's like a gentleman thief, who's like a criminal Sherlock Holmes uh, that exists, and he was created by I think Doyle's like brother-in-law or cousin, or he's related to him in some way. I think did you mention the Nicholas Myers book, The Seven Percent Solution? No, I didn't. I was just thinking about that though. That's like one of the most famous. Yes, that becomes a bestseller, and then Michael Chabon, of course, writes one about. An older Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that one's really good. I like that one a lot. And then Mitch Cullen, I guess they made a movie about it. Is that Mr. Holmes? Yeah, the book is called A Slight Trick of the Mind, where Holmes is 93 years old and dealing with memory problems. A very sad book. Mm -hmm. But an interesting take on the detective. There's also the Doomsday Book, which is a detective comics story that teams up Batman with all other detectives from the detective comics and then eventually with a very old Sherlock Holmes who lives in the Himalayas and is a beekeeper and somehow that keeps him young. Yes. Yeah. And so that's that's powerful. That yeah, that kind of happened that's sort of nodded to in the Mary Russell series. It's a big component of the story is that Holmes is retired mm-hmm. in the British countryside and he's a beekeeper, which is where Mary meets him. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite books, it's not exactly about Sherlock Holmes, but it's called The Sherlockian, and it's a mystery written by Graham Moore about a bunch of Sherlock Holmes scholars who solve a mystery, which is interesting. That's cool. So, and Yeah, then, and there's also like a shit ton of characters who are like, basically Sherlock Holmes, but what if he did this instead of like... One of my favorite literary characters, which we'll absolutely cover at some point on this podcast, is Karnacki, the ghost, uh, the ghost finder. Yeah. yeah, Karnacki, the ghost finder, who's like a supernatural Sherlock Holmes. It has that same structure of like he does his adventures, and we have a, another character relating them to us. 
The structure in Karnacki, though, is that he has, like, dinner parties and a guy comes over and listens to him talk and then writes down his stories. I think that you did not mention one of the greatest... First of all, it's one of the greatest mashups, but then it's also one of the greatest Sherlock Holmes-inspired stories, which is Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald. Yeah, that one's really good. So Because that, that's, like... That's got, like, so many nested twists in it. It's re- really, like, brilliantly conceived story. Because the initial premise seems to be Sherlock Holmes, but the great old ones have supplanted the royal family. Right. And then the twist is that the protagonist is... The secondary twist is that the protagonist is Moriarty, and that Sherlock Holmes is, like, a rebel. Mm-hmm. But... To make it even better, it comes from an anthology series, an anthology volume called Shadows Over Baker Street, which is H.P. Lovecraft Holmes mashup. So every story in the volume has to deal with H.P. Lovecraft and Sherlock Holmes. But I think this Neil Gaiman story becomes sort of the breakout success of that volume. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Sherlock Holmes and Lovecraft have been both of them separately have been matched up with everything under the sun so it only makes sense to mash them up together what's your favorite sherlock holmes media uh i like the well i mean i like they might be giants but other than that um my favorite is like the 80s like adventure of sherlock holmes tv show is that what it's called it's like you know what i'm talking about yes yes i do I like that a lot. I like the like weird aesthetic of like production designers in the eighties trying to make something look like uh, the eighteen hundred. Yeah. yeah, and uh, that's got a great Watson and a great Holmes. I thought you were going to say the Great Mouse Detective. Oh, the Great Mouse Detective <laughs> is my favorite. I love the Great Mouse Detective. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, that's rules. It's sort of Sherlock Holmes was a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great though because it sort of plays homage to all of the like things that are Sherlock but also has an interesting story that doesn't sort of play down to children which I think is nice yeah I like the whole aesthetics of it is that he's a mouse detective and he lives in 20 what does he live like 2021 C he like lives in like (laughs) he like lives in a mouse hole in their house I think is the idea yeah that's really cool and then I just wanted to mention, if you're like seriously into Sherlock Holmes and you want to know more about the sort of scholarly community of Sherlock Holmes, the Sherlockian.net website, which is, I think, run out of the University of Michigan, is a place where scholars who study Sherlock Holmes stories, there's lots of information about the stories, the settings, the techniques, the technology, you know, the Anything that has to do with Sherlock Holmes and how he he solves those stories. Yeah. Um, also, if, the, uh, if you like audio dramas, Big Finish has a bunch of Sherlock Holmes ones with original and adapted stories. And like Nicholas Briggs plays Holmes, I think. And I listen to a couple of those and they're pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot about Sherlock Holmes and I'm sure... There's probably podcasts that are just... Oh, there oh, there's is. There's a shit ton of podcasts that They're are just, just about Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> we might cover more Sherlock Holmes stories at some point, I think. I don't know. But, I mean, I like detective fiction a lot. And I like the different genres of detective fiction. And I know we talked on the previous version of this podcast, which is probably lost, but we did 
talk about the American version of the gritty 1930s detective. So maybe at some point we can bring that up. That's my jam. I like that stuff. Yeah. I'm not a huge, like, mystery fiction person. But, I mean, I like some detective stories, but I tend to like them when they're weirder and grittier. Yeah, and I think, like, British detectives tend to be, like, intellectual. They're either intellectual geniuses or busybodies. Yeah. I like a detective that gets beat up a lot. That's my favorite thing. Yeah. I mean, like, my my favorite detective story of, like, all time is, like, Motherless Brooklyn. Like, that's the shit that I like. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great homage to that sort of noir detective. It's very American. You don't really see that a lot in British literature. That flawed, heavy-drinking, gun-toting detective. That's kind of more like the American style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, do we have anything else to say about Sherlock Holmes? Obviously, at some point, we'll have more to say about Sherlock Holmes. So it's a I, huge topic. I think the thing for me is that he doesn't say, it's elementary, my dear. Oh. But he does say, the game is afoot. So, wait, does he? Yes. Oh, I didn't even notice. So, oh, oh, shout out. I wanted to recommend the thing. I listened to Audible. It's like an Audible exclusive, so sorry about that. Uh, has a, I think it's a complete collection of Sherlock Holmes, narrated by Stephen Fry. Ooh. Now I listen to that version of this, which is really good. I mean, Stephen Fry, he's got a great voice. Does uh, he do an American accent? That's what I was to say. The best part is he does an American accent for the part that's narrated by Hope. <laughs> so you get a lot of Stephen Fry doing like, uh, like grizzled, like, like Wild West hero voice, which is very good. I am into that. And he does like a Cockney accent for like the cops and stuff, and like it's he's, it's really good. I, I recommend that. I'm surprised that they never did an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes with him and Hugh Laurie. I think the time had House is considered House is very Holmes. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Before and after House flips how you would cast it, because if you before House the casting would be Fry as Holmes, Laurie as Watson. After House. The casting would be Laurie as Holmes, Fry as Watson. Yeah, yeah. And I think both versions would have worked equally well. But I think House has the same thing where... It would have been weird, though, that they were also Jeeves and Wooster, and and, and then being Sherlock Holmes and Watson would have been a strange thing. Also, there's a... Alan Moore wrote a a mashup of... It's in League of Strange Gentlemen, but he wrote a mashup of uh, Jeeves and Wooster with Lovecraft. (laughs) I have a we- I have a weird suggestion for either Holmes or um, Watson. No fielding. Uh, I think that'd be cool. How get him and and uh, what's his face? That dude from the Mighty Boosh. That they work together. Get them to be Holmes and Watson. Yeah, I th- I mean I think that would be fun. I mean I love I love no fielding. I, I'd like them to do more stuff in general. I think you that. That would kind of lean into this as a parody. Yeah, yeah. So. And like this, the Holmes is like a really weird dude. I think that's one of the. I mean, I like the Sherlock BBC series, and I like. I like parts of it. Like I said, it's deeply flawed. But I like. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch. No. Oh, uh, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman's very, very good as uh, Watson. I mean, he's pretty, pretty good in most things. I think he said something recently that sucked. I can't remember. But I like him. But I think that they really kind of lean into the, like, Holmes has a weird brain and it works in a different way. Well, he literally says he's a sociopath in the first episode. But I like 
the Moriarty. I like the casting a lot. I like the... I like that dude, but I don't like him as Moriarty. Yeah. I like him in almost everything else. His Moriarty is like too... Well, one, I think they're trying to play him as gay to make him seem more evil, which is not a trope I like. And two, he's just like too keyed up. Yeah. I like the idea that like, I think one of the things that's really compelling about Moriarty is like, he's smarter than Sherlock Holmes. And like the idea that he wouldn't be taking Holmes seriously is really fun to me when you get a portrayal of Moriarty like that. I think a lot of the modern takes of it, they heighten. I, one of the, I mean, I'm not going to say they're the greatest movies. Great Mycroft in that, though. Yeah, but like the like Robert Downey Jr. version. I like those. They they kind of embody more of what the actual story is. It's like an action story and a mystery. But I think like some of the series and some of the adaptations sort of focus on like the negative parts of Sherlock Holmes. Well, the Seven Percent Solutions is like yeah. way into that. And I think it's kind of the like. The origin point that a lot of these, like, Sherlock Holmes stories that are about how much Sherlock Holmes as a person sucks, I think kind of originate with the 7% solution. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like they focus on, like, his, like, maybe his, like, social anxiety or his drug use or his, like... Well, this, yeah, well, again, that 7% in, solution is way about that. to, like, make, like, personal connections or his, like, extreme intelligence and, and the isolation that it causes. And I feel like... Like, they're interesting takes, but it's, like... Like, the TV show Elementary, which was, like, a, a you know, a made-for-TV one-hour drama. Like, season after season after season of him having drug problems and relapsing and... I mean, kind of got to the point where it was, like, the stories were all about, like, Sherlock Holmes and his recovery and mm-hmm. not about, like, the mysteries and the relationship they had together. Yeah. Which I thought kind of wore on me. I, I eventually, like, just stopped watching it and never watched it to the conclusion, believe it or not. I hear a lot of takes that are, like, actually, Elementary is the best one. I like Like, the best lot. adaptation, which I've never I've never watched it. We but. didn't talk about, like, in pastiches that James Patterson actually has a Sherlock Holmes character. That My he, boy JP's got a Sherlock yes. Holmes? What's, his Sherlock, what's up with that? He's, like, a professor who solves crimes and his watson is a female police detective Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so and they made a tv series that had um alan cummings the british actor what did it i didn't know that that existed that sounds cool (laughs) yeah uh we also didn't mention sherlock holmes in the 22nd century where sherlock holmes is revived in the 22nd century and his watson is a robot wow but he is a robot with a gut and a mustache. So, you know, there's that. Are you looking up the James Patterson thing? Yeah. I forget what the TV... Oh, he has a book He has a book series for children called The Young Sherlock Holmes. Really? Yes. He's a busy man, a busy guy. I, for, I only know that his name is Dylan Reinhardt. That's the character that's the Sherlock Holmes. Dylan Reinhardt? Yes, and the TV series is called Instinct. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes, I was aware a, that that existed. I didn't know that that had anything to do with James Patterson. Yes, he is a uh, criminal behavior expert and a psychologist who's a professor. And he takes up with a woman who is a very competent police detective, but somehow cannot solve crimes without him. Hmm. <laughs> so. 
that's one of those. If I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Instinct is one of those titles that's got a backwards letter in it. Yes, it's got a backwards <laughs> N, I believe. You you have you those, seen it? No, it's just one of those weird details that I'm like I, I fixate on. <laughs> titles with backwards letters, you know, movies with fistfights in the rain. I just have to keep a catalog of them in my brain. <laughs> I'm trying to see who the actor is. It's Alan Cummings. You're it's right. It's Alan Cummings, right? Which I, I now like, that I know that that's the show, I can tell you, yes. One him. of the things I liked about the stories were interesting, but one of the things I really admired for like a mainstream TV show was they had. A very strong gay character. He was married. Mm-hmm. He had a relationship. He was, you know, trying to be a father. Like, it was really sort of inclusive, which I don't think is kind of, I think, in my mind, James Fashion just does that when he wants to make money. He is inclusive. I don't think he really cares about well, I mean, being he's like out. He's basically, he's he is not dissimilar to uh, Disney. Right. As, like, an organization. I mean, also, in terms of... Like amount of content he puts out because that dude's got a lot of books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's a factory. We know that. Yeah. And like a factory, he's the owner of the of the writing, the James Patterson writing factory. <laughs> Just imagining like a Willy Wonka, <laughs> James Patterson. There's like a river of just like pages. Yes, and all these poor writers. If you want to view Alex Cross, simply look around and view him. Is that his character? Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, good. I think he has a whole bunch of liberal arts majors that have, like, they're chained to, like, desks with, like, their student loans. So every Mm. word that they write takes, like, a penny off their student loan debt or something. (laughs) Oh, okay. So we've devolved into dunking on James Patterson. I think it's maybe time to wrap up this podcast about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Okay, well, before we end, two things. Oh, I like. Did you say? Did Did you like this story? I did. I like Sherlock Holmes stories, but I don't worship Sherlock Holmes uh-huh. in the way that other detective fiction fans. Sorry, detective fiction fans. Who's your Who is your favorite literary detective? Can you answer that question, or did I just put a ton of pressure on you? The detective that I love the most mm-hmm. is Harry Dresden. Okay, that and makes I don't sense. even know I'm, if that's shouldn't even, be surprised by that. I don't even know if that's really like a traditional detective story. I think that counts. But he is a detective, and he's a wizard, and mm-hmm. he's pretty great and fights monsters and rides a dinosaur. Okay. And then there's another question. Do you like Sherlock Holmes as a character? And also, do you think we're supposed to like him by the end of A Study in Scarlet? I will say that I do like him. I liked him. Reading this story made me like him more because he's so weird in this. But I wasn't couldn't tell if we were supposed to like him by the end. Or if we were supposed to think he was, like, kind of a prickly character and mostly identify with Watson. I think if I was reading these stories in the newspaper at the time that they came out and I read the story, I would be like, that Sherlock Holmes is an asshole. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else would be like, did you read that story? Isn't he an asshole? Like, he would be like a shared, like, you're interested in him because he's doing something interesting doesn't necessarily mean you're like, I love Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Like, there are characters that people have that they love. Sure, yeah. Like Columbo. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess we're done here. Uh, so next episode, we're going to do uh, Volume 2 of The Wicked and the Divine. Um, Speaking of assholes. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and then we'll be done for the month. At that, tune into that episode. 
and we'll announce the novella for next month. Stay tuned. Uh, yes. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned, my dear Watson. The game is afoot. It's a whole dang foot, this game is. Oh, 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 oh